So, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let us look at John's portrait. And I do realise that you looked at Trinity and John, I think, in the last session here. So I'll just do a very, very brief overview. And I just really want to make sure I'm covering the fourth portrait, like that lady said before, covering the fourth portrait. And all of these are quite a high level. So there's, all of these can be drilled into a lot more. I'm sure you'll find ways of accessing to go deeper into any of these. So in some ways, it's a, it's a high level, broad, um, big picture, big strokes uh, view of the four Gospels. Um, and then we'll do a little bit more fresh insight in the questions that we talked about uh, before. Okay, so John's portrait... Um, I'm calling that the, the detailed pen and ink drawing. Um, it's careful, but in a different type of way. And I remember when I was studying in Manchester for architecture, we had like a foundation year. And our foundation year, those of us studying architecture, were mixed with people doing fine art and people doing illustration, people doing 3D design, all these other sort of ones. And it was fascinating to see the different disciplines. And um, the fine art and the watercolour, it, it's, it's intricate, but actually, it's different from a detailed pen and ink. So, so John's portrait is, is, I'm going to say, the detailed pen and ink drawing. Um, a guy called Irenaeus in the earliest church, second century, um, he tells us that John wrote the gospel, and he was in Ephesus sometime between 90 and 110 AD. And so John, knocking on a little bit, um, wrote the gospel in that sort of time. Um, with John, the audience is less clear. So if you remember, we've said that Matthew probably is aiming mostly at Jews, lots of Old Testament background, lots of uh, allusions to the Old Testament, lots of quotations, lots of times. So it was fulfilled. So Jesus is fulfilling all the messianic promises. Very much a, a Jewish audience. Mark, probably a Roman audience, fast, quick, pragmatic. It's got to work. Does it work? Does it work? Does it work? Pragmatists always say, does it work? Purists say, is it true? Pragmatists say, does it work? And we need a bit of both. I think Paul was quite a pragmatist. Anyway, um, and, and so, so Mark is very much for that Roman audience. Fast, far less to do with the Old Testament. It has to explain things. Not so much on the teaching. So very much the, the, the Romans. Luke, more intricate, more careful, more thought through. Probably written for the Gentiles, the Greeks. Um, I, I sort of took the mickey out of Mark's Greek, and it, it's not good Greek. It really is not good Greek, Mark's Gospel. If, a, if you're a Greek scholar, you would know that far better than I. Um, not great Greek. Oh, Luke, Luke, Luke. Different kettle of fish. Even non-Christians would hold up Luke's Gospel as classic examples of real high-quality Greek writing of the day. And, and, and I love that, that Jesus can use a Luke and use a Mark. And of course, he needed to be. If you're convincing Greeks and, and the Hellenistic culture of the day, the, since Alexander the Great through the Roman era, the, the, the Hellenization, the Greekification, if you like, the, the, the Greek language all over the place, so critical. And um, one of the Gospels needed to have somebody who was a real clever dude with Greek that was going to convince Greek scholars, which, of course, ties in with him using all the historical accuracies and dating things beyond anything to do with God and church. Um, so for the Jews, for the Romans and for the Greeks, the three main people groups. With John, it, it, it's less clear. Um, some argue possibly written to Jews of the diaspora. So Jews who had gone all over the place. Um, but the clear message is to convince them to follow Jesus. And so I questioned before, somewhat just a stir, um, whether John is the best gospel to give somebody who's thinking about following Jesus. Some of it's complex, but actually maybe it is. 
because it has a clearly evangelistic message. We'll come to that um, at the end. Um, so although the audience is not so clear, um, the purpose is very, very clear. And the purpose is this, that by believing, you may have life. Anybody who studies the Bible knows that uh, John is held up that quite often you don't know what the purpose of the writer was. Because only when you know the purpose of a writer can you really drill into the lenses they were looking through. John's gospel is an unusual exception. So at the end of chapter 20, so chapter 20, verse 30. So the last two verses of the second last chapter of John's gospel. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So I love that. John's saying he did a lot of other stuff as well. I haven't got time. (laughs) Did a lot of other stuff as well. But here we go, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That, in a word, is the message of John's gospel. Everything that John wrote, he wrote so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. Once you know that, a bit like we said before, if you read John's gospel... And have a filter on your eyes that is looking for belief, faith. And have another filter on your life that's looking for life. You'll find it all over the place. Once that's been triggered in your mind. Every time you read John. Well look at that. Believe. Life. Believe. Life. Believe. Life. All the way through. And John is very very clear. Jesus is the Christ. And therefore we said before that Christos. Christ is the Greek. Messiah is the Hebrew. So translate Hebrew to Greek. Messiah is Christos. Messiah is Christ. Um, And the message of John's gospel is Jesus, the human person, is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. It was really weird. I, some years ago, was in Israel for a bit and met people called Jesus. It was really weird, you know. It was like, Jesus, can you pass the sugar? (laughs) It just sort of, it sounds a bit wrong, that, doesn't it? That's not a good good prayer. You've got prayer. Jesus, can you? Um, So Jesus is like an ordinary name. Jesus was an ordinary name. And so the message of John's gospel is Jesus, the bloke, is the Messiah, the Christ. That's his message. And that by believing that, you can have the life that God has intended. So although the audience is less clear, the purpose is very, very clear. Jesus is the Christ. In fact, there's a great book written by a guy called Leon Morris, who's an Australian scholar. Now, those are words that don't go together so often. Um, But it's a really great book called Jesus is the Christ. If anybody's from Australia, I'm sorry about that. Um, And so so Jesus is the Christ. That's a great book. If ever you see that in the second-hand bookshop, Leon Leon Morris. Um, Jesus is the Christ. And by believing that Jesus is the Christ, you will have life. And so Jewish history and imagery is common in John's Gospel. Jesus fulfills many Old Testament prophecies. He makes links with Old Testament characters and there's a load of Old Testament symbolism. So to some extent, it slightly parallels Matthew with the Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament characters, Old Testament symbolism. There's something of that, but it has a slightly different purpose. It's still got that universal edge. What is also important in John's gospel, though, is the continuity and the discontinuity with Israel. There's continuity and discontinuity. So, for example, looking through the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there was emphasis on the shepherd. So the Lord being your shepherd, but then the Lord gives shepherds to shepherd his people. And so there's some really strong words said to shepherds 
<laughs> so don't ever, don't ever fancy being a pastor. It's a, oh, <laughs> it's a duty. It's a, oh. and, and Ezekiel and other places will talk about the shepherd role, shepherding his people and looking after people. So there's the shepherd. Now, then when it comes into John's gospel, and you probably know there's lots of sayings of John, the I am sayings. That's quite well known through John's gospel. I am this, I am that. And it's put together very carefully. And one of them, of course, in, in chapter 10 is I am the shepherd. I am the shepherd. Is that all that Jesus says, though? I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. In fact, it's interesting. There's two Greek words you could use for, for, uh, for good, generally. And the one that Jesus uses there is kalos, K-E-L-O-S, kalos. I'm the good shepherd. It's really interesting. He could have used the word agathos, which is more to do with sort of um, moral goodness inside. But you know, when he says Jesus is the good shepherd, he uses kalos. He's the kalos shepherd. And kalos is still good, but you'd probably want to translate it attractive. Attractive. So, you know the word calligraphy? So, kalos graphos, beautiful writing. So calligraphy is beautiful writing, kalos graphos, beautiful writing. And so, so he says, I'm the, I'm the attractive shepherd. When you look through the Old Testament, shepherds didn't get good press. They were selfish. They were hard-hearted. They were sometimes idolatrous. They were lazy. And so, therefore, there's continuity that Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, but actually I'm the kalos shepherd. I'm the attractive shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And then, of course, in John 15... Jesus does another of his I am's. I am the vine. But he doesn't just say I am the vine. He says I am the true vine. Exactly the same point is being made. Because vine and vineyard was a really important motif of God's people Israel. In fact, in Jesus' day, on the coins they used, they had a picture of a vine because that's a symbol of the people of Israel. And therefore, in the same way that God's shepherding motif was in the Old Testament, also God's people, Israel, were the vine. And the classic go-to would be Isaiah chapter 5, where, where there's a song about a vineyard. And the bottom line is God says, I've poured my whole life into this vineyard, but you've let me down, people of Israel. That's what Isaiah 5 is. That's, it's all the way through the Old Testament. So when Jesus comes, he picks up the mantle from the Old Testament, but redefines it. It's not just I'm the vine, I'm the true vine. And therefore, in continuity with the people of Israel, because we forget the Jewishness of Jesus sometimes, but in continuity with the children of Israel, he's not just the shepherd, he's the true shepherd that all of the shepherds have pointed towards. He's not just the vine, he's the true vine. So he's fulfilling what had not been fulfilled in Israel as the people. So he's the fulfillment of that. And so really clear purpose, even though the audience is unclear. Quite different to the synoptics, quite different to the synoptics, which is why this phrase of synoptic seen together is used for the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they are the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, Luke need to be seen together. <clears throat> Although John's telling the same story, he's seen quite differently. The resurrection account is far more detailed. And why? Because for him, it's all about life. It's all about life. The resurrection, far more detailed. So let's have a think about what's not in John's gospel. What's missing? No parables. Oh, 
Oh, fancy missing them. No genealogy of Jesus. The word. It's all about the word. In the beginning was the word. And then John 1, 14, the word became flesh and lived amongst us. No parables, no genealogy, no sermon on the mount, no big teachings like that in that style. No transfiguration, no showing what he's really like. No Lord's Supper. Well, that's a bit of a miss. If he'd have done an essay for me at our college, hey, you've missed something big out, mate. No Lord's Supper, no Gethsemane. And what's only in John's Gospel? Nicodemus. Well, that's an important chat. I'm really glad Nick went to talk to Jesus. Otherwise, we've had no John 3.16. I would have been a, a real loser. So Nicodemus, only in John's Gospel. The woman at the well, only in John's Gospel. And again, we said before, does it mean that because Nick was chapter 3 and the woman at the well was chapter 4, does that mean that on Tuesday, he met Nick, Nicodemus, and on Wednesday, he met the... No, it's put together very carefully. And so chapter 3, chapter 4, he meets a man, then he meets a woman. Chapter three, he meets a very high up religious dude. And chapter four, he meets a, I was going to say slapper. Can you say that? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My name's Richard Thomas. <laughs> and, and very different. And of course, he meets Nicodemus when? In the dead of night. And he meets the lady in the bright midday sun. Two individual conversations. They sure were real people. There was a real guy called Nick and there was a real woman and we don't know her name. See, there's so many contrasts and comparisons you can make. These are cleverly put together documents. They are true records, but they are put together. And Jesus has the time to have a long conversation with Nicodemus, a long conversation with a woman we don't even know her name. Religiously, they are miles apart. Ethically and morally, they're miles apart. One in the middle of the night, one middle of the day, one highly religious, one not. One very, very different. See, the universality. This gospel is good news for all no matter how high or how low, how religious or irreligious, male and female, etc., etc., high, 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 low, whatever. And so, so um, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, Lazarus, Lazarus is only in John's gospel. I mean, Matthew, Mark and Luke, what are you playing at? If you've got anything you want on your CV, it's Lazarus coming alive again. John has three Passovers, so we know that notion of the three rhythms, which, of course, um, the synoptics only have one Passover. Certainly Mark's gospel, it looks like Jesus only does stuff for about a few months. So it's very, very different, very different. John is far less interested in chronology and far more interested in theology. Now, you could say that of the others, but, but John especially so. It's not a chronological diary. It's a theological document, which doesn't mean it's not true, but it's a theological document. So John constantly goes deeper. John is the guy, the guy that goes deeper. There's a really dramatic po prologue. I mean, he, he's, he's deliberately wanting to mimic here Genesis. So you know Genesis in the beginning. John, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Wow. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. That has been made. In him was life. He gets straight in there. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness not understood it. And then there came a man from God, John. And then bang, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. There was, in the earliest translation, I remember years ago having the privilege of going to some sessions taken by the translators of the NIV. And in the very earliest translations, it used to, of the NIV, it said he tabernacled for a while amongst us. 
but they changed it because no, 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 he didn't tap, he didn't come down for a bit and clear off. He dwelt amongst us. Sometimes we have really bad theology. I was talking to somebody who had been a Christian for a while, and I made some passing comment about Jesus still being human in heaven. It's like what? Yes. Of course, he's, a, he's the first bloke in heaven. He's the first human being in heaven. But we have this weird thing that Jesus became human, was born, and then went to the cross. And, and then when he ascended to heaven, he stopped being human. That's weird. There's, that's a really real heresy in the earliest church. It really was. But somehow we, we missed that. And we thought, yeah, there's a human being in heaven. Well, no, there's only Jesus. Yeah, but he's a human being. And, and so the, the humanness, he, he didn't just dwell for a while amongst us. He made his dwelling. In other words, the incarnation, so the enfleshment of God, when God took on flesh without stopping being God, that was not temporary. That was permanent. He's permanently a human being in heaven. John takes us into this deep theology. You drown in deep theology, but it's so profound. But all the time, it's about Jesus, the bloke, is the Christ, the Messiah. And by believing that, you get life. And then the metaphor, and once you've got that life, you should be the light to the world. All that very, very strong in John's gospel. Um, so it's constantly deeper. Uh, symbolic terminology. So we talked before about shepherd and vine and stuff like that. Really powerful. Um, long discourses often arising from the signs. And there's a little thing you just need to pick up on. And t- Tom Wright is really good on this. If you, if you want a little commentary um, on, say, Mark's gospel. I mean, they're all good. But, but Tom Wright does these little commentaries called um, Mark for Everyone, Luke for Everyone. Those are brilliant. My wife loves them. Um, I, I, if my wife reads our commentary from front to back, that is a good commentary, believe me. Um, and Tom Wright picks up on this brilliantly, that whereas the other gospel writers talk about miracles, John talks about signs. And so um, we know that Jesus in chapter 2 of John goes to the uh, wedding, which is a good job because it's quoted at most weddings nowadays. I don't know what we'd have done if Jesus hadn't gone to a wedding. Um, <laughs> But the fascinating thing is that John then, uh, Jesus does the, the water into wine. It's really good. Uh, like miracles like that. And then verse 11 of John 2 says, This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. Um, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. It's about believing in him all the time. But when John talks about miracles, he refers to them as signs. And therefore, the sign is pointing to who Jesus is. Really important. And then in uh, chapter four, uh, he gets into the same thing and says there's a, this was the second miraculous sign. I'm um, just looking for where that is. There we go. At the end of chapter four. Um, and so Jesus meets the guy um, visiting Cana, um, the royal official whose um, um, son's sick at Capernaum. Uh, the man, this is verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word love that you see believing jesus says your son will live and then verse 54 last verse of chapter 4 this was the second miraculous sign that jesus performed so we need to see that where the other where the synoptics talk about the miracles and the supernatural miracles luke especially because the power of the spirit and the helping people in need john makes a point of saying these were signs pointing to who jesus jesus was 
If you want to follow that through with Tom Wright, Tom Wright says it brilliantly. And, and if we're not careful, what John is saying is, don't get obsessed with the signs. Maybe it's because I know I come from a sort of Pentecostal charismatic background. And, and sometimes, you, I, know, I, mean, I believe in the miraculous. Sometimes I go to churches that don't quite believe in the miraculous or not till heaven. Anyway, there's no, um, um, but, but sometimes we can have a hankering for the miracles. Oh, miracle, 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 give me a miracle, you know. Uh, but John makes the point, he said, the whole point of the miracles is not so you're in awe of the miracle. Don't gaze at the sign. Oh, that's an interesting sign. No, no, no. The sign points to who Jesus is and put your faith in him. And so, so John talks of the signs, not the miracles. The difference being, don't get obsessed with, oh, what a wonderful miracle worker. No, no, no. The, the miracle is the sign that points to who Jesus is. He's always wanting people to recognize who Jesus is. A bit like the I am sayings. I am this, I am that, I am the other. Once you've found those, you'll find them all the way through. Um, also, profound teaching on the person of the Spirit. Um, many years ago, I remember having to do some study on the Trinity. And I know you did this um, last, last session. And uh, I remember eventually my final line, I think, of this essay was, um, to be honest, having studied this Trinity, I still don't understand it. But if I, did, if I could fully understand it, I'd have quite a, a big mind. <laughs> because it's ungraspable. But the truth is, generally speaking, the Old Testament reflects the oneness of God and the New Testament reflects the threeness of God. And it wasn't for a couple of hundred years before that word Trinitas, Trinity, was put together. But of all passages in the New Testament, John's Gospel, especially John 14, 15 and 16, those are your go-to messages, go-to um, words for showing the threeness of God. And it must have been so difficult for these good Jews brought up in Judaism and the reason that Judaism didn't get wiped out um, by the Romans is because the Romans knew the belief in one God was so powerful with the Jews. They ain't going to give that up. And so even the Roman armies and Roman, Roman authorities tolerated that because they're, they're not going to give up this, their belief in one God. And suddenly the disciples are beginning eventually to cotton on. Wow, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So this one God, here he is, Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the God. Now, one God that's been through our tradition for generations. Here he is, the one God. And then this one God stands in front of them and says, Heavenly Father God, please send your Holy Spirit God. And no wonder the disciples are baffled. <laughs> that's the foundation. That, that's what John takes us into. He's the only one that really gets us to mess with our heads thinking of the Trinity. That Trinitarian emphasis, John 14, 15 and 16. Jesus, God, praying to Heavenly Father, God, asking for the Holy Spirit to come. God, that threeness really important. John really makes you think. John is the gospel of all that you can drown in. And so um, who is Jesus really? So in John's gospel, the humanity of Jesus is clearly portrayed of all the Gospels, we see Jesus is tired. Jesus is thirsty. Jesus cries. He's sad. Jesus is disappointed. Jesus is amazed. I was going to be a bit contentious by saying Jesus is surprised, but that might mess with some theology, so I won't. You see, in his humanness, he is fully human. I remember years ago... I fell into the trap of thinking that the humanness that Jesus had was like a superhuman humanness. Um, 
And I remember one of my theology professors many, many years ago, a great guy, he said, so imagine that we're next to a big river and we're all here absolute desolate because we can't go where God wants us to go. We're designed for that better thing. We're designed for that eternal better thing. And we're marooned here, trapped. And God says, don't worry, I'll send my son Jesus and he will come down to rescue you. And so Jesus parachutes from heaven. It's the diagrams. And so Jesus comes down and he comes down to rescue his people. And he lands the other side of the river. And says, okay, you guys, get across here. And then I'll help you to become all God wanted you to be. The whole point is we can't help ourselves. That's what Romans is all about. We can't help ourselves. We can't get over the blinking river. That's the problem. You see, if we have a theology that says, oh, Jesus came in his humanness, but he wasn't human like me. That, I'm sorry, is heresy. The humanness he had is our humanness. He had the same humanness. He didn't land on the other side of the river and said, come over here, boys, I can help you then. No, he landed right where we are. There was um, an early church father who said, what he did not assume, he cannot heal. In other words... (gasps) He can only rescue us if he becomes like us. Now, we know that the Bible says he knew no sin. But don't ever let that cause us to fall into the trap of thinking he was a superhuman humanness. He had our humanness. But then he lived a life without sin. It's really important that. It, it's fascinating well, because sometimes it gets a bit confusing. So there's a, there's a little Greek word that's used. Some of you might want to run away with this. Some of you won't, so forget it. But socks. Socks. <laughs> Say that carefully. <laughs> Pair of socks. No. Um, and and the, the word we just read before, the word became socks. That's John one fourteen. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. That same word comes up in Romans, letter to Romans, and there it's translated sinful nature. That gets a bit tricky. So Paul talks about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. That's the flesh word. Sinful nature, the flesh. So the word became flesh. That's fine. But if we start putting the way it's translated in Romans back into here, the word, the, the word became sinful nature. Ooh, ooh, that doesn't sound right. Well, it's not right. So we need to think through how we understand this. And the bottom line is Jesus landed on the same side of the river where we're marooned. He became human just like us. In other words, if you want the fancy jargon, he assumed fallen human nature. But he redeemed it by never sinning. That's why Romans talks about him being the second Adam. First Adam, human nature got it wrong. Second Adam, Jesus got it right. So, so I, I, and I focused on that far more than I intended to. Hopefully the Spirit's prompting me to, to focus on that. I didn't intend any of that really. But, but we can miss that. We can have this really bad understanding so we forget the humanness of jesus he assumed fallen nature and redeemed it and the two extremes we can go to that both are heresies is one of them which sounds good but it's still a heresy is he assumed unfallen human nature well he's the wrong side of the river no no he assumed fallen human nature not unfallen the human nature he assumed is the human nature we have however The extreme view the other way is, and then because he had a fallen nature, he was just like the rest of us and as bad as the rest of us and married Mary Magdalene, if you believe all these films and stuff. You're not watching The Da Vinci Code, good. Uh, (laughs) 
And, and so, so because sometimes we can be fearful of all these dodgy stuff that Jesus had sex with Mary, Magdalene, blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. Jesus was, was superhuman human. And in our defense against that dodgy stuff, we can overreact and protect a superhuman humanness. Please don't do that. Jesus assumed fallen human nature, just like us, but redeemed us because he never sinned. I don't know. I didn't intend to go into any of that, but still. But that's uh, John 1, 14. Um, and socks. Say that carefully. Um, so Jesus is human, but Jesus is also fully divine. He is fully and completely the son of God. He is God. That's why he starts so profoundly. In the beginning was the word. The word was God, was with God, and the word was God. He was with God. All of that stuff was really, really important. He's not some superhuman angel. There was never a time when Jesus was not. That was the way some of the early fathers said it in the creeds. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Jesus didn't come along after a bit. He's not a junior partner. <laughs> okay. And so Jesus is fully human, and the humanness he has is the humanness we have, but he redeemed it, but he's also fully the son of God. Um, and, uh, and John is the only gospel writer to, to actually identify Jesus as fully divine. The word was God. He talks later, I am the father of one. And of course, speaking to Thomas, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And so Jesus is identified as God in John's gospel more clearly than the others. And that's the gospel that emphasizes his humanness. He's fully human and he's fully God. Jesus is the Christ.